and welcome to None of My Business. I'm Michael Jackett. This is a business podcast, but mainly it's about people and their business. It's driven by my own curiosity and passion for learning from every conversation. Rodney Block, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. Looking forward to it. Thanks, mate. Um, now, you and I met uh, a few years ago now. We were working, well, you were at GoPro. I was work doing a project for GoPro on, it was a, it was a well, I was working with the, with the um, US team um, because that's where the point of sale was, you know, they, they kind of managed that from the US and that was what I was doing at the time. Um, but you, but COVID's happened. A lot of things have happened in the industry, you know, GoPro very susceptible to retail environment, obviously. Um, where are you, what are you doing? You know, where are you at now? You, you're, you're not with GoPro anymore. Yeah, no, unfortunately, uh, my time at GoPro finished, uh, early April actually. So off the back of some global restructuring. So yeah, just over, I think it was 250 sales and marketing staff mm. uh, were made redundant. And part of that was a change of their business model. They're going more for a direct to consumer model and felt probably the need for international staff uh, wasn't at the front of uh, their strategy. So yeah, mm. there was, we had to shut down some offices in Melbourne and different parts of the APAC region, which I was managing. So um, mm. never a good time, but uh, no, as the no. saying goes, life goes on. That's right. So you've had a really, you know, like looking at what you've done at GoPro, you know, obviously a huge amount of success there. Um, and I know I have a limited, you know, knowledge, which is what I like about what you did prior to GoPro, which is what I want to kind of unpack a little bit with you. Um, but where did you, where did you get your, where'd you get your start? Where did you kind of lean into this sales and marketing space or did, or is that where you started or did you come through a different channel in your career? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting one. I started um, out of school. I almost, in, in a lot of ways, fell into software and, and game software. Going back to early 90s, I, I worked with a local company just, um, and it was a, a company that did shareware, which is basically software that um, back in those days, you'd pay $5 and you'd get, um, let's call it, you know, one level of a game and uh, a bit like the snack gaming that you see now. So you'd get a level for $5. And then if you wanted the full version of a game, uh, you'd pay 60 or $80. And um, the company I was working for at the time, it was really the infancy and, and the beginning of gaming here in Australia. It goes back to PC games when it was five and a quarter inch discs and three and a half inch discs, which is showing sort of where it was. Um, I often think about that, you know, kids these days that have no idea about what that looked like. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. What they would be familiar with is some of the brands sort of going back then. We, we had a game or a series of different game publishers and a few of those big ones, which people will know. We sold the first Doom, which was um, oh, yes, by Doom. going back Doom and Wolfenstein. Yeah. And actually mm. one of the game publishers is the biggest in the world today, which is Epic. Uh, Epic Games, which back then was Epic Mega Games, and they did a game called Jazz Jackrabbit, which was a oh. um, yeah a game. So yeah, I was lucky enough to, to 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 jump into technology and software early, and then started in an office role, and then pretty quickly you know, I I gravitated towards sales and started to grab hold of some games and go out there and start selling them to independent computer shops back then, and 
So did you do the... Were you drawn to games because you were a bit of a lover of games or did you, or was that a bit of a, you know, just a natural progression in what you were doing at the time? Was it a family thing? Like, how does that, how did that happen? Pure luck, pure luck. It was an office job that just happened to be in software and gaming, which, and local. And from that, I just grew, you know, into sales roles. And then I started working for a US company called GT Interactive, which again, we're doing some, some of the big, big games at the time and then yeah moved from gt i was in gt interactive in multiple game roles and i moved to a company called thq which was again a u.s listed company that did video games or a publisher and mm. developer and my boss at the time at gt um he and i set up back in uh, 2000 actually and we started from scratch and then built that up to a 70 or 80 million dollar business and Mm. yeah it was uh yeah exciting times so what was that set what was that business that you built up it was called thq which was right. a u.s company so they had a lot yep. of license going back to the color game boy and game boy advance days so we did yep. a lot of the nickelodeon and disney and uh, mattel games for color game boy and nintendo 64 so it was yep. a u.s publisher so you made games for playstation xbox wasn't around then it was nintendo and then xbox came in so we'd have you know, Rugrats and um, Barbie and um, The Simpsons on Color Game Boy and Game Boy Advance, Nintendo yeah, 64. Right. And then, uh, so yeah, we it was yeah we were associated with some great brands. WWE was one of them in the early days. And yeah. um, I've always been associated with some pretty amazing licenses. So, so yeah, so you were a licensed business, but did, did, what did you, what did THQ did they build the games? So they designed and built the games then you know, in, in a license agreement with those brands? Yeah, so we had a license agreement to produce those games. So studios, most of it in the early days, the studios were in the US, but then, yeah. um, and then our job from the sales marketing operations perspective would be to go out to Big W or to EB Games or to JB, JB Hi-Fi wasn't even around back then um, at, at yeah. this level. Um, and you were selling the games to, you know, Harvey Norman was very strong then, Meyer, and, you know, it was sales, marketing, you know, boxes on shelves, create the hype and, you know, watch the sell through. Yeah, right. So have you always had a, like a strong personal direction in your career? Like you're very organic, you know, what you've just described, very sort of organic, you know, like um, process to, you know, as you said, a bit of luck to get your foot in the door of a, of a growing industry and, you know, and then you sort of were able to scale that and have an impact. But, but more generally speaking, even up to this point, have you sort of had a strong sort of, I don't know, career work ethic or a, or a strong direction in where you wanted to get to and how you wanted to get there? Yeah, I think um, what happened with me is I was never a big gamer, but my time in video games, which was over 20 years, and then moving into GoPro for six years, it's fast-moving consumer electronics, which is where my passion, and I just love the fact that in those industries and gaming and GoPro that something new was always coming out. I think Mm -hmm. the thrill and the excitement of, you know, you'd see a game that's not coming out for two and a half years and you'd see the first two or three levels and you'd get excited. So I think I'm not a tech tech nerd or anything, but I just love, you know, that early, early days to that, you know, getting a product on the shelf and seeing technology evolve and then, you know, seeing the sell throughs and 
and seeing yeah. the success is probably what's driven. I just love that fast. Anything that's in a JB Hi-Fi or Harvey store is, is yeah, what I love. Just fast moving consumer yeah. electronics is probably where, and that sort of grew organically from sales to marketing to general management. Yeah. And if you surrounded yourself with people, you know, often the cases where you come in from the sales marketing management expertise, but you know, around you will be the tech heads and will be the people that, you know, have a bit more in depth understanding of the industry maybe, or, you know, have you found yourself that you, you sort of play off those dynamics? Yeah, look, you, you get to the stage in any form of tech where you've got a certain, and you've got to know your tech, but you do, you need to get to the layers of a product manager or, um, your PR or comms guys who need to understand the absolute ins and outs of mm-hmm. the technology. But um, I, I tend to yeah, rely on those guys to feed me the information. So when you get to a general management perspective, you've got to know enough to be able to, you know, whether you're presenting to the press or being interviewed or you're, you know, doing product launches and events, you've got to know your product. There's no hiding from that. And that's a fundamental and something I love, but, uh, yeah, you do rely on your guys to to feed you. They're the experts, and um, probably more the, t- the more technical guys that um, yeah. spend more time playing games than I ever did. But yeah, engineers and yeah, yeah. Um, so you've you've I, you've done a bit of travel in your career, obviously. With you know, obviously working with you know, partnering with a US based business, and then I know you did with GoPro, but we'll kind of dig into that a bit more later. But um, how have you found that sort of traveling pros and cons and you know do you enjoy the traveling or is it something you just found yourself having to do based on with the with the type of roles and companies you've worked for yeah it's a good question i mean travel um i guess as my career advanced um beyond australia new zealand and into apac roles i, I really enjoy the different cultures and, and building and seeing what happens in a japan to compared to what happens in an india or China or the different countries across Southeast Asia. So I must admit, you know, I've, I do and love, you know, building businesses in, in across the APAC territories. I mean, some of the things that I put, and I was really, really fortunate today. My wife was so supportive of my career and um, she never held me back. I had a few rules around travel. I, I tried to stick to, if I flew out on a Monday, I'd be home on a Friday. Yeah. Um, and that meant that, you know, I was around for the family, but three young kids and they've all had to take, make some sacrifices across the journey. But, um, yeah, I did that successfully, but I was probably on the road, you know, once every four weeks. A lot of people would say to you, oh, how do you go with the travel? I mean, mm. at times it got me, but I was so passionate and loving around what I was doing that it was never a burden. Occasionally, you know, if you're sitting in a lounge at, you know, eight thirty nine o'clock at night on a, you're in Tokyo airport, you just want to get home and, yeah. you know, read the footy teams and see what's going on. But um, no, it was, and if, if it got to the stage, I always said, if I got bored of the travel or it was such a burden, mm-hmm. I'd come back and do an Australian, New Zealand type role. But um, I do love, you know, building and meeting cult, sort of meeting, te- build, building teams and, and meeting new people in new countries because you, you're just learning all the time. That's yeah. what drove yeah. me. Yeah. I um I must admit I I share that I share that view you know <clears throat> I got to travel a fair bit early in my career more in the design space so I was going up to China a lot and I was doing you know going to the factories and doing a lot of that sort of stuff and then 
you know, being able to take product. And well, one of the companies I worked for was based in Spain up in the Basque country. So I got to do a bit of Europe and, and the US, they had some US distribution. So I kind of got this taste very early of travel. And I sort of the memories that I think about when I'm traveling is those those periods where you just, they're not like the going to bars and stuff, which is all fun. And, you know, but it's sort of sitting on a train going from one city to another and that those moments of just contemplation and sort of reflecting and you sort of get to have a think about what you're doing and, you know, what, you know, like the broader context of the impact you're having and all that sort of stuff. I must admit, I sort of miss, I miss that side of it, you know, which is probably got a lot to do with you know i've got a couple of young kids that are hanging off me more than they ever have <laughs> which yes. is, which means that time to to do that is um is different now than it was then but yeah there's something about travel within work you know once if if as long as you enjoy the you know the fact that you've got to sit on planes a lot and you know sit in live in hotels and all that sort of stuff but um there is certainly something that I think that traveling adds and I think it's got to do with that cultural, you know, immersive, immersing yourself in other cultures. And um, yeah, actually one of the only times I got to go to Japan was on the project that I was doing for you guys at GoPro. Um, and that was a great trip, you know, like I think I was only in there for three or four days, but you know, again, never been to Japan, Japan before that gave me the opportunity to do it, meeting people, you know, at different companies that have, you know, different perspectives and, doing different things so it's um yeah it's a nice part of the gig i think if you can get it if you can do it yeah and i think the like putting a gopro on a shelf and a jb or a harvey norman here and you know then you're talking to retailers at you know yodabashi and big camera and yamada in japan um and then even translating that back to the u.s particularly with gopro where you know you've got these big best buy and walmart stores where we have these big three and four foot point of sale units which work in the US mm. but don't necessarily work in Japan because you've got smaller footprints so yeah. um, we we had a good time sort of I mean you take on board the feedback from retail there and then you look at it and think yep that's what we've got to do but then I think it's the the politics the politics the the selling you've got to do back to corporate to say hey guys this is the way they do it in Japan it's different to the way you do it in, in yeah. the US so you've got to be respectful but at the same time so part of those challenges is what i love just to sort of yeah. articulate and to be able to put case studies and sell the story around what works in japan is different yeah. to the us and it's different to india and i, I yeah. think i thrived on that mm, totally so talking about gopro you know they um they like an amazing brand you know like irrespective of what state they're in now and the struggles that they've obviously been impacted with covid and all that sort of stuff but but having the involvement that I was fortunate enough, I think, to have with that brand for a couple of years there, um, you know, like a really strong brand, like people really lived the brand, like the, the staff loved it. Um, and I think it was, you know, for want of a better word, I think it was a really aspirational kind of environment and brand um, to be around. Can you just give me a bit of a an insider's kind of view on how that, what, how that dynamic was created and why it, you know, like why it was continued to be driven and, you know, or, or was it, you know, that there was just certain things that as an outsider you don't see and there were certain challenges. Um, yeah. Can you just sort of give me a bit of an inside view on, on that? Yeah, look, the simplest way I can answer that one is uh, Nick Woodman, who's the, the founder and owner of GoPro, who, you know, I think going back 14, 15 years ago, you know, he's a surfer by trade, I'll call it. Um, yeah. He was surfing here in Australia on a 
sabbatical with a mate and he wanted to capture himself on the waves. And he strapped a uh, disposable camera to his wrist and started um, filming himself. And you know, from then, he it then grew to borrowing some money off one of his best mates uh, who put, put in, I think, 50000 He turned that in. 250 million but that's a story in itself but um i guess where i'm going is nick is the foundation of the company i mean he's such an energetic and passionate character you walk into the boardroom over there in san mateo and nick will have his uh, shorts t-shirt and flip-flops on um that was the culture of the company he he let people be who they are and express themselves in a way that they were comfortable so um that vibrancy and that aspiration. I mean, he lived the brand, he, he surfs, you know, skates, skis, um, not so much jumping out of uh, aeroplanes and things, but it, it, definitely an aspirational brand. And the, the DNA of the company comes front and center from Nick and it just flows through the, it flowed through the organization. People were energetic and passionate about what they did. I mean, you gotta think at the end of the day, it's a camera brand that's one of the coolest and hottest brands in the world. People, yeah. you know, will wear a GoPro cap or a shirt. Um, yeah. They, not being disrespectful to Canon and Nikon, but Nikon, but would they wear a Canon or Nikon shirt? True. They yeah. may each their own, but um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 Nick. Nick's the foundation, and he, uh, yeah. So he, he it's a re- it's a space that really interests me at the moment because um, I'm doing a bit of work around. Um, I do a bit of work around social enterprise and um, one of the sort of the key things that we're looking at is this corporate social responsibility or this, you know, in the States, they call it more environmental social governance, ESG. Um, One, I'd be interested to see, to to sort of hear if any of that kind of crept into GoPro as a brand and as a company. But um, one of the big things around that space is, it's one thing for brands to sort of have a strategy and a, and a, and a motto and a, you know, this is what we stand for. This is what we represent, but there's another thing for it to be really sort of actionable and you know, that the staff see it on a daily basis and they continue to buy into it in the long term. you know, and as you describe that, you know, like obviously Nick is a huge influence on that business, but the company is massive, you know, and there's like offices all over the world, you know, and not everyone gets to engage with Nick on a day to day basis. Um, I just, it, it, it's, do you, th- I, I just wonder, is there, were there certain things that you sort of think about that you reflect on that why it was able to translate so broadly, you know, like his ethos and his, you know, message, or did he just in fact get in front of the everyone often, you know, and, and that was able to translate in that way? Yeah, I think, uh, there's a couple of really solid initiatives within the company. I think it's pretty similar in a lot of big U.S multinationals is they have, you know, town hall meetings and um, family hangs where the front man and the, the leadership teams are, you know, whether it's monthly or bi-monthly, they're updating staff on, you know, key milestones or, you know, what the strategy looks like. So mm. a lot of that was, was there. And then Nick, you know, at different times would come out to the regions um, it was look. His style is so infectious that the way he lives and, and and pushes and promotes the brand is what staff. You know, you spend five minutes with him, whether it's on a video or on a um, you know face to face. It's really just infectious, and yeah. I think the staff 
attach themselves to that. You know, he's like mm-hmm. the the king type thing, and um, mm-hmm. people follow. It's like you know the Pied Piper. Yeah, totally. It's an interesting. It's an interesting idea. Like <clears throat> you know that it really does come down to these leaders, and you know leadership is another big one that. I talk a lot about on this podcast and, you know, get other different people's views on it. And, you know, Nick strikes me as a, um, like, you know, clearly a leader because what you've just explained, but maybe not the typical kind of leader. Um, or maybe it is in Silicon Valley and those kind of big startups and those big companies that go to IPO, particularly for a aspirational kind of, you know, tech brand like GoPro. But um, yeah, it's, a, it's fascinating to sort of see that. Um, so I mentioned before, you know, environmental, social governance kind of stuff. Did that did did that have a role within GoPro? Was that a sort of at the at the forefront of the GoPro vision and mission? Yeah, look, it was there. Um, the latest camera and was part of works that had been going on for a good couple of years was to look at, you know, the packaging. So you know, there was a fair bit of plastic and mm. throwaway within earlier cameras. Um, the very latest camera now, um, they abandoned the, yep, a lot of the, pa- the plastic and the packaging now is a sleeve and a, and a, um, a carry case. So it allows, you know, there's a nice sustainable message there, but and GoPro was always very, um, you know, associated with you know, if it's different sea life or trying to you know, do better things mm. with the ocean and, or, I mean, I can't name it off the top of my head, but, you know, there was, sorry, there was an internal program called GoPro for a cause. So um, the environment was front and centre of that. And Nick being a big surfer um, and a number of surfers within the org, it, um, it did push through and sustainability and doing the right thing by the environment was definitely front of mind. I'm, I was rapt to see the latest packaging, um, yeah, mm. taking that message to, to an action rather than words. Yeah, great. Um, they've sort of struggled a bit, like, you know, if you read, I, know, I mean, I, I bought some GoPro shares a few years back and then I got out of them and, you know, looking to get back into them, to be honest, cause they're doing, they, they seem to be having a bit of a kick again. Maybe the, the nine can, you know, rein, <laughs> reinvigorate them. But, um, did that weigh heavily on the management team, you know, from, your, from where you were sitting in terms of the, that top line growth over the years since IPO and, you know, was it was it was it discussed a lot? Is it something that weighed heavily on the business, or did you just get on with creating good product and creating a cool brand? Yeah, look, it was. I mean, I started in twenty fourteen, which was just after the IPO, mm. and I remember in the first twelve months thinking, "Wow, this is this is like, you know, you're living like a rock star." And the different you know conferences and events you went to were. You know, the company, I think, got as high as $96 a share. Um, it's trading at $4 today. Um, and I was speaking out of school because it's public knowledge. GoPro have, you know, lost money for four out of the last five years. Um, mm-hmm. They made a, a small profit last year. So it was always back of your mind. I mean, I wanted nothing more than success. And I know the leadership teams across the world wanted that. Um, you know, Again, I don't think I'm speaking out of school. I think in a lot of ways it was like a fast-moving startup that had, yeah. you know, went from X amount of staff to 1,600 and that's now being pulled back to 700-ish mm. type. Um, so, yeah, it's always, I mean, you think the three boxes, I used to say to family and friends, is you know, one of the hottest brands in the world. 
over 40 million social media followers, um, 70 to 90% market shares in developed markets. And yeah, um, so look, I think the ingredients are still there and Nick, I'm sure, will get that right with his team. And um, yeah, but it was it did weigh always on your mind. I mean, you've got to be in business to be making money. That's the yeah. simplest yeah, totally. But I think also, I mean, we don't have to look too hard to find businesses that have got massive valuations that aren't necessarily profitable yet. You know, so it's almost like a symptom of, of that startup space. Not that GoPro's a startup anymore, but, you know, there's, there's, big, there's big dollars being put behind brands that aren't making any money at the moment. Um, so, it's all, yeah, it's just a, it's an interesting, interesting thing. Like to have such a strong brand, um, but that still be something that they're you know they're trying to still refine and and get right. Um, do you have do you have a lot of experience in working sort of in large versus small businesses and and you know obviously GoPro being a very large organisation global, um, but do you have a you know I know you're doing some you know some consulting you do your own consulting which we'll have a talk chat about but. Do you have a sort of a preference around small and large businesses and brands versus, you know, smaller non-known, you know, type brands and companies? Yeah, look, I've been fortunate to, to work for big guys and then also spent time working with a startup distributor. When I left THQ, I went to, we set up a good contact of mine. Uh, we ended up doing Disney Interactive distribution for gaming here in Australia and New Zealand. So mm. that was, you may recall at the time there were Skylanders and there was the Disney characters that um, you played, you bought the different characters and they came to life in your video game. So I did that for about two, two and a half years. So that, you know, you find you're filling in forms to try and get your, you know, the right barcodes to get a product on range with um, JB or EB games to, you know, trading terms to you know, setting mm. up operations. So look, I, I'm fortunate that I've got the ability to scale sort of to get my hands dirty and then work my way through it. When I started at GoPro, my first role was looking after Australia and New Zealand. Um, and then that grew at the end from, you know, to be senior director of sales and marketing across APAC. So look, um, I, I, there's, there's, there's pros and cons with both. I mean, the bigger the org, the more politics and the more bureaucracy you have to deal with, which yeah. you got to learn to bite your tongue because you know when you're part of a big org and you, it's it's almost like chipping away at a rock. Yeah, um, you got to put across your case and back it with facts and figures, and you know, mm. no might mean no once, twice, three times, and then yeah. the fourth time you send a spreadsheet or a PowerPoint, um, you may get the answer you want. So um, that's probably can be the the frustrating part around, but I get why, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. Um, and then brand-wise, look, as I said, I've been really fortunate to to wake up every day and be involved with gaming and then GoPro. Um, it's just amazing tech, and that's probably what's that's where I've got a lot of my energy and passion. I mean, when you're doing something you love, um, it's, it doesn't feel like work in a lot of ways. Yeah. How did you go setting up and managing that sort of distributed team across APAC? Because you were sitting, to, obviously you travelled a bit and got into the regions or got into the countries a bit, but, you know, sitting down in Melbourne, did you sort of have any, you know, like, how, yeah, how did, how did you find that setting up those teams? 
Yeah, so a lot of it comes back to your network. Um, I look at you know, people, if I, you know, examples like Singapore, um, a guy that worked in the gaming world and worked for a distributor over there when we mm. needed someone to do channel marketing in Singapore and do some sales. You know, we, we knocked on his door. Yeah. Um, the really interesting one was India because um, we went across there. I had worked in India in video games, but it was... Mm you know, $2.50 royalties and it was a bit of a cowboy market. Um, going across to India was, you know, I did have some contacts from gaming days and you just got to talk to people that you know and trust and get their recommendations. Yeah. And they'll say, hey, speak to this person. As an example, we hired a girl over there that was recommended and she's there today and she's a, she's a star. She used to work with Nickelodeon, which I had an attachment to through THQ and, She's now working for GoPro in in India. So I guess you've got to talk to your network and, and those that you know and trust because nine out of 10 times, if you know and trust someone and they recommend someone, yeah. um, that gets you a good a good foothold. So mm. um, yeah, that, that's probably the key learning that I've had when you're setting up distributors and, and hiring staff in regions. If you have a network and someone recommends it, it generally puts you in a better position to hire the right people. Yeah. Be able to trust them. No, you're going to get what they tell you you're going to get, <laughs> or at least they're going to yeah. do what they say yeah. they're going to do. Yeah. yeah. Agree. Um, I, uh, this year I've sort of intentionally, well, you know, part of it's been COVID part of it's been an intentional um, decision, but sort of taking on different things, you know, that's probably sat outside what I've done in my career for the last decade. Um, like I'm doing a lot around consumer research and insights at the moment. Um, I'm engaged, as I mentioned before, with a couple of social enterprises doing this podcast, but do you, do you have a sort of a career path from this point, having sort of so much experience in what you've done? Are you sort of taking a bit of a step back just to sort of go, all right, I'm doing, you know, you're doing some consultancy and you're doing a couple of those working with, I think you mentioned a business that you'd previously worked with prior to GoPro or, or during GoPro. Um, but do you have sort of a career path that you're intending to take from this point at a very top level, obviously not, not granular, not detailed, but sort of at a top level? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, that first week when, you know, things went down with GoPro, I didn't do a lot of sleeping, to be honest, because your mind just races and you think, what's next? Mm -hmm. um, and, and knowing that COVID was going to be presenting challenges for the type of role, I mean, the type of role that is suitable for me, you know, I've been, I've done business development, I've been managing director, I've been general manager, so that general management, MD, Mm. type role is is going to be difficult to find over the next probably six to 12 months until the market opens up. So mm. if there was the right job with the right, you know, company, fantastic. Um, but there is you know, sort of, that's one side of it, but the other side to it is, you know, the vulnerability you feel when you do get made redundant and working for US based companies, it sort of sharpened the resolve to think, you know, how do you protect yourself against that going forward? So mm. um, I'm fortunate at the moment. I've, I've, I'm, I'm working on a few different projects and the consultancy side of it has been good. And I'm, I'm, my craft around or my experience in video games and, and um, sort of in that digital imaging type space is where I'm 
concentrating, but yeah, you don't, it is an adjustment. So from consulting, you know, you're used to worrying about every dollar that's either being spent or the revenue at the end of the month, the end of the quarter. Mm. Um, I still wake up, you know, thinking what, what, what's the end of the month and how are we going? And, you yeah. know, when you've got 10 or 12 direct reports, you, you want to make sure that you're there for your team. So it is a bit of an adjustment. I've probably found yeah. that we're not going you know, hammer and tongs with revenue and managing staff. Um, but yeah. yeah, the flip side is the consulting is, you know, if you've got some experience you can share and help, you know, brands launch or you can help them, you know, find that right distributor or find um, a placement of your product, whether that it be in APAC or in different parts of the world. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so to answer your question, I think I'm, I'm open-minded to what, what's next and, mm. um, yes, yeah, so, so we go. Great. What's, um, what's the appetite at the moment for businesses or do you, do you see more of an appetite, appetite for businesses using consultants and contractors because of, you know, the unsure, the, you know, not being sure about the long-term future of certain things or, you know, have you seen any, anything around that? Well, I think there's going to be more consolidation. I think, you know, it's as tough as this sounds, the experience with GoPro and I think there's going to be other, you know, major companies and brands that start to look at potentially downsizing and saying, do I, with the, with the model moving more digital led and whether that split, you know, if it was 90, 10 from your bricks and mortar to your digital, mm. if that be, starts becoming 60, 40, does that mean you need as many mm. frontline sales and marketing staff? So I think there'll be some adjustments. Um, is it going to be a total flip? I don't think so. I mean, some of the experience I had working in China, they're probably five or six years in front of us here with regards to digital. So, mm. you know, you go over there and you start looking for the JB Hi-Fi or Best Buy stores they don't exist. It's two big online players, JD and Tmall, that have like 70% share. But that's flipping back. You know, the last year or two that I was with GoPro, we were setting up GoPro stores up there because customers wanted to touch and feel and have a look at the user interface and feel the product. And yeah. um, so there is that shift back. So it's sort of, I think there'll be an adjustment. Um, and some consolidation with some of the, the staff numbers. Um, will it lead to more consultancy? Maybe it will. You know, there is, um, you know, who knows what the future is going to look like. But I think there could be more of people doing multiple roles and specialising in certain segments of, you know, whether that be sales, marketing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sort of was thinking about this early, early in the, when we sort of got into corona, I was sort of, just contemplating whether or not that dynamic around what a full-time employee and how companies engage with full-time staff is, if that's going to be impacted and changed in the longer term, you know, is it, and, and I mean, that's a good, that's not to say that's a bad thing for the employees, you know, I think more flexibility around how we work and where we work from. And, you know, naturally once those conversations start happening, companies, just as you've said, will start looking at, hang on, do we need to be doing everything we were doing before the same way, you know, or can we start to open up the question questioning around more things, you know, which again, we probably find some uncertainty before we find stability, but all in all, all in all, it's, um, it's probably not a bad thing for companies to sort of review where they're at and, you know, just make sure that it's aligning with, you know, where they think they were going to be and where they want to be in future. 
Yeah, I think so. I think the fact, and I mentioned China before, I mean, the China shopping experience is different. You know, you can travel five kilometres in China and it could take you two and a half hours. Whereas here, you know, you go to your local Harvey Norman or Good Guys or, you know, Southland or Chads, wherever you're going, you can get a car park. The shopping experience is friendlier. So I'm a traditionalist, you know, I still, you know, want to see the bricks and mortar guys, you know, holding on, not holding on, but, um, you know, keep driving their businesses and online. Yep, it's taking chunks and beats away at the moment. But I think Australians are pretty unique in that aspect that, you know, it's an experience or it's a day out to go shopping as mm. opposed to some of the other countries. It's it.com is, is friendly or it's easy because you press a button, it gets delivered, it saves you traveling in, yeah. in traffic chaos. Totally. Yeah. I, um, one of the reasons I sort of moved a bit away from pause, which is where you and I, you know, the bit, the type of business I was in when you and I met, but, um, is I was sort of really craving more, um, more data, you know, like more, you know, like data, everyone's going towards data anyway. In fact, there's so much data in the world. It's, it's almost overwhelming, but, um, you know, it's very hard in bricks and mortar or in retail to apply data and, and analytics and insights to physical retail displays and stuff, unless you've got, you know, those metrics and, you know, the, the connectivity with, you know, Wi-Fi or cellular or whatever it is within your displays and you can measure that. But, um, yeah, I just found after years and years and years of designing and producing and, you know, selling and marketing those sort of that sort of industry that it was a really tough, it, when, when the questions came around to, all right, so we've just spent a million bucks on rolling out these displays and, you know, doing this big program across <coughs> sometimes multiple countries, um, how are we going? And obviously the, the sales uplift and those metrics are, are one thing, but um, I've, as I, th- as I mentioned before, I've gone into this consumer insight space where you, you have this, con- this direct conversation with the consumer. Um, and there's an art to that, you know, there's a science behind how you, you know, engage with con- consumers, but um, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating space that I'd, I'm certainly, you know, just on the tip of the iceberg at the moment in terms of my own <laughs> um, investigation within that space. But it's um it's re- it's a really interesting space to get that direct feedback from consumers firsthand, you know. Yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah, it's funny you say that. It just triggered in my mind the point of sale units or the POP at GoPro. Uh, we used to refer to them as our stormtroopers or yeah. our ATMs. Yeah. And a lot of people would look at those. You know, we invest a lot of money mm. in that space, but it was worth it because you walk in to a store. And you look at the JV, you know, whether you're in a JV, Harvey's good guys who are independent, you see that stand yeah. and you see the, you know, the TV with amazing images and you see, you know, accessories and cameras sitting there as opposed to getting thrown amongst, you know, 10 other different brands on a shelf. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of companies underestimate the value. I mean, look, it's not cheap, so I'm not saying <laughs> it is, uh, isn't, doesn't require investment, but yeah. Um, yeah, those point of sale units can be absolutely worth their weight in gold. Yeah, totally. Because I think you, if you think about the investment, not so much in terms of, um, well, if you think about it in terms of owning the space, you know, and, and it's in a competitive market, it's in a competitive environment within those Harveys and JBs and good guys and all those, you know, in Australia. Um, and then it gets even worse and bigger in in the u.s but um 
you know, so but GoPro were able to own that space because of their presence in that space. Um, and so they really dominated the message, um, you know, of what they were and what value they brought. And, you know, that's, um, that was the, that, that is the beauty of those displays. But as you said, it takes a, takes a big investment to be able to get there. But I think it was, um, I think it's definitely something that brands need to be conscious of as we go through this, like, this transition as we've just sort of discussed it or this balancing of like how far do brands go down the online and direct to consumer versus, you know, retail and what, what, what presence they have in both of those spaces. But it's certainly, it's not sort of black or white. I think it's, um, it's, it, there's an argument for both, you know, and getting that balance right. Rod, thank you so much for your time, mate. It's, um, it's been a fascinating chat and, um, I've really enjoyed the catch up and hopefully we'll uh, we'll have a chat again sometime soon. Yeah, cheers Michael, I've enjoyed it. So uh, yeah, best of luck with everything and thanks for having me. Cheers mate.